Chapter Nine of The Man Whom the Trees Loved. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Whom the Trees Loved by Algernon Blackwood. Chapter Nine. And so the thought that she was the one to go remained and grew. It was perhaps first sign of that weakening of the mind which indicated the singular manner of her going. For it was her mental opposition, the trees felt, that stood in their way. Once that was overcome, obliterated, her physical presence did not matter. She would be harmless. Having accepted defeat, because she had come to feel that his obsession was not actually evil, she accepted at the same time the conditions of an atrocious loneliness. She stood now from her husband farther than from the moon. They had no visitors. Callers were few and far between, and less encouraged than before. The empty dark of winter was before them. Among the neighbors was none in whom, without disloyalty to her husband, she could confide. Mr. Mortimer, had he been single, might have helped her in this desert of solitude that preyed upon her mind, but his wife was there the obstacle, for Mrs. Mortimer wore sandals, believed that nuts were the complete food of man, and indulged in other idiosyncrasies that classed her inevitably among the latter signs which Mrs. Bittacy had seen taught to dread as dangerous. She stood most desolately alone. Solitude, therefore, in which the mind unhindered feeds upon its own delusions, was the assignable cause of her gradual mental disruption and collapse. With the definite arrival of the colder weather, her husband gave up his rambles after dark. Evenings were spent together over the fire. He read the Times. They even talked about their postponed visit abroad in the coming spring. No restlessness was on him at the change. He seemed content and easy in his mind, spoke little of the trees and woods, enjoyed far better health than if there had been change of scene, and to herself was tender, kind, solicitous over trifles, as in the distant days of their first honeymoon. But this deep calm could not deceive her. It meant, she fully understood, that he felt sure of himself, sure of her, and sure of the trees as well. It all lay buried in the depths of him, too secure and deep, too intimately established in his central being to permit of those surface fluctuations which betray disharmony within. His life was hid with trees. Even the fever so dreaded in the damp of winter left him free. She now knew why. The fever was due to their efforts to obtain him. His efforts to respond and go, physical results of a fierce unrest he had never understood till Sanderson came with his wicked explanations. Now it was otherwise. The bridge was made, and he had gone. And she, brave, loyal, and consistent soul, found herself utterly alone, even trying to make his passage easy. It seemed that she stood at the bottom of some huge ravine that opened in her mind. The walls whereof, instead of rock, were trees that reached enormous to the sky, engulfing her. God alone knew that she was there. He watched, permitted, even perhaps approved. At any rate, he knew. During those quiet evenings in the house, moreover, while they sat over the fire listening to the roaming winds about the house, her husband knew continual access to the world his alien love had furnished for him. Never for a single instance was he cut off from it. She gazed at the newspaper spread before his face and knees, saw the smoke of his cheroot curl up above the edge, noticed the little hole in his evening socks, and listened to the paragraphs he read aloud as of old, but this was all a veil he spread about himself of purpose. Behind it he escaped. It was the conjurer's trick, to divert the sight to unimportant details 
while the essential thing went forward unobserved. He managed wonderfully. She loved him for the pains he took to spare her distress, but all the while she knew that the body lolling in that armchair before her eyes contained the merest fragment of his actual self. It was little better than a corpse. It was an empty shell. The essential soul of him was out yonder with the forest, farther out near that ever-roaring heart of it. And with the dark, the forest came up boldly and pressed against the very walls and windows, peering in upon them, joining hands above the slates and chimneys. The winds were always walking on the lawn and gravel paths. Steps came and went and came again. Someone seemed always talking in the woods. Someone was in the building, too. She passed them on the stairs, or running soft and muffled, very large and gentle, down the passages and landings after dusk. As the loose fragments of the day had broken off and stayed there caught among the shadows, trying to get out. They blundered silently all about the house. They waited till she passed, then made a run for it. And her husband always knew. She saw him more than once deliberately avoid them, because she was there. More than once, too, she saw him stand and listen when he thought she was not near, then heard herself the long, bounding stride of their approach across the silent garden. Already he had heard them in the windy distance of the night, far, far away. They sped, she well knew, along that glade of mossy turf by which she last came out. It cushioned their tread exactly as it had cushioned her own. It seemed to her the trees were always in the house with him, and in their very bedroom. He welcomed them, unaware that she also knew and trembled. One night in their bedroom it caught her unawares. She woke out of deep sleep, and it came upon her before she could gather her forces for control. The day had been wildly boisterous, but now the wind had dropped. Only its rags went fluttering through the night. The rays of the full moon fell in a shadow between the branches. Overhead still raced the scud and rack, shaped like hurrying monsters. But below the earth was quiet, still and dripping stood the host of trees. Their trunks gleamed wet and sparkling where the moon caught them. There was a strong smell of mold and fallen leaves. The air was sharp, heavy with odor. And she knew all this the instant that she woke, for it seemed to her that she had been elsewhere, following her husband, as though she had been out. There was no dream at all, merely the definite, haunting certainty. It dived away, lost, buried in the night. She sat upright in the bed. She had come back. The room shone pale in the moonlight, reflected through the windows, for the blinds were up, and she saw her husband's form beside her, motionless in deep sleep. But what caught her unawares was the horrid thing that by this fact of sudden, unexpected waking she had surprised these other things in the room, beside the very bed, gathered close about him while he slept. It was their dreadful boldness, herself of no account, as it were, that terrified her into screaming before she could collect her powers to prevent. She screamed before she realized what she did, a long, high shriek of terror that filled the room, yet made so little actual sound. For wet and shimmering presences stood grouped all round that bed. She saw their outline underneath the ceiling, the green spread bulk of them, their vague extension over walls and furniture. They shifted to and fro, massed yet translucent, mild yet thick, moving and turning within themselves to a hushed noise of multitudinous soft rustling. In their sound was something very sweet and sinning that fell into her with a spell of horrible enchantment. They were so mild, each one alone, yet so terrific in their combination. Cold seized her. The sheets against her body had turned to ice. She screamed a second time, though the sound hardly issued from her throat. 
the spell sank deeper reaching to the heart for it softened all the currents of her blood and took life from her in a stream towards themselves resistance in that moment seemed impossible her husband then stirred in his sleep and woke and instantly the forms drew up erect and gathered themselves in some amazing way together they lessened in extent then scattered through the air like an effect of light when shadows seek to smother it it was tremendous yet most exquisite a sheet of pale green shadow that yet had form and substance filled the room there was a rush of silent movement as the presences drew past her through the air and they were gone but clearest of all she saw the manner of their going for she recognized in their tumult of escape by the window open at the top the same wide looping circles spirals as it seemed that she had seen upon the lawn those weeks ago when sanderson had talked the room once more was empty in the collapse that followed she heard her husband's voice as though coming from some great distance her own reply she heard as well both were so strange and unlike their normal speech the very words unnatural what is it dear why do you wake me now and his voice whispered it with a sighing sound like wind and pine boughs a moment since something went past me through the air of the room back to the night outside it went her voice too held the same note as of wind entangled among too many leaves my dear it was the wind but it called david it was calling you by name the air of the branches dear was what you heard now sleep again i beg you sleep it had a crowd of eyes all through and over it before and behind her voice grew louder but his own in reply sank lower far away and oddly hushed the moonlight dear upon the sea of twigs and boughs in the rain was what you saw but it frightened me i've lost my god and you i'm cold as death my dear it is the cold of the early morning hours the whole world sleeps now sleep again yourself he whispered close to her ear she felt his hand stroking her his voice was soft and very soothing but only a part of him was there only a part of him was speaking it was a half-emptied body that lay beside her and uttered these strange sentences even forcing her own singular choice of words the horrible dim enchantment of the trees was close about them in the room gnarled ancient lonely trees of winter whispering round the human life they loved and let me sleep again she heard him murmur as he settled down among the clothes sleep back into that deep delicious peace from which you called me his dreamy happy tone and that look of youth and joy she discerned upon his features even in the filtered moonlight touched her again as with the spell of those shining mild green presences it sank down into her she felt sleep grope for her on the threshold of slumber one of those strange vagrant voices that loss of consciousness lets loose cried faintly in her heart there is joy in the forest over one sinner that then sleep took her before she had time to realize even that she was vilely parodying one of her most precious texts and that the irreverence was ghastly and though she quickly slept again her sleep was not as usual dreamless it was not woods and trees she dreamed of but a small and curious dream that kept again and again upon her that she stood upon a wee bare rock in the sea and that the tide was rising the water first came to her feet then to her knees then to her waist each time the dream returned the tide seemed higher once it rose to her neck once even to her mouth covering her lips for a moment so that she could not breathe she did not wake between the dreams a period of drab and dreamless slumber intervened but finally the water rose above her eyes and face completely covering her head and then came explanation 
the sort of explanation dreams bring. She understood, for beneath the water she had seen the world of seaweed rising from the bottom of the sea, like a forest of dense green, long, sinuous stems. Immense, thick branches, millions of feelers spreading through the darkened, watery depths, the power of their ocean foliage. The vegetable kingdom was even in the sea. It was everywhere. Earth, air, and water helped it. Way of escape there was none. And even underneath the sea she heard that terrible sound of roaring. Was it surf or wind or voices? Further out, yet coming steadily towards her. And so, in the loneliness of that drab English winter, the mind of Mrs. Bittacy, preying upon itself and fed by constant dread, went lost in disproportion. Dreariness filled the weeks with dismal sunless skies and a clinging moisture that knew no wholesome tonic of keen frosts. Alone with her thoughts, both her husband and her God, withdrawn into distance, she counted the days to spring. She groped her way, stumbling down the long, dark tunnel. Through the arch at the far end lay a brilliant picture of the violet sea sparkling on the coast of France. There lay safety and escape for both of them. Could she but hold on? Behind her the trees blocked up the other entrance. She never once looked back. She drooped. Vitality passed from her, drawn out in a way as by some steady suction. Immense and incessant was this sensation of her powers draining off. The taps were all turned on, her personality, as it were, dreamed steadily away, coaxed outwards by this power that never wearied and seemed inexhaustible. It won her as the full moon wins the tide. She waned, she faded, she obeyed. At first she watched the process and recognized exactly what was going on. Her physical life and that balance of mind which depends on physical well-being were being slowly undermined. She saw that clearly. Only the soul, dwelling like a star apart from these and independent of them, lay safe somewhere with her distant God. That she knew, tranquilly. The spiritual love that linked her to her husband was safe from all attack. Later, in his good time, they would merge together again because of it. But meanwhile, all of her that had kinship with the earth was slowly going. The separation was being remorselessly accomplished. Every part of her the trees could touch was being steadily drained from her. She was being removed. After a time, however, even this power of realization went, so that she no longer watched the process, or knew exactly what was going on. The only satisfaction she had known, the feeling that it was sweet to suffer for his sake, went with it. She stood utterly alone with this terror of the trees, mid the ruins of her broken and disordered mind. She slept badly, woke in the morning with hot and tired eyes. Her head ached dully. She grew confused in thought, and lost the clues of daily life in the most feeble fashion. At the same time she lost sight, too, of that brilliant picture at the exit of the tunnel. It faded away into a tiny semicircle of pale light. The violet sea and the sunshine, the merest point of white, remote as a star, and equally inaccessible. She knew now that she could never reach it, and through the darkness that stretched behind her, the power of the trees came close and caught her, twining about her feet and arms, climbing to her very lips. She woke at night, finding it difficult to breathe. There seemed wet leaves pressing against her mouth, and soft green tendrils clinging to her neck. Her feet were heavy, half-rooted, as it were, in deep, thick earth. Huge creepers stretched along the whole of that black tunnel, feeling about her person for points where they might fasten well, 
as ivy or the giant parasites of the vegetable kingdom settle down on the trees themselves to sap their life and kill them. Slowly and surely the morbid growth possessed her life and held her. She feared those very winds that ran about the wintry forest. They were in league with it. They helped it everywhere. Why don't you sleep, dear? It was her husband now who played the role of nurse, tending her little wants with an honest care that at least aped the services of love. He was so utterly unconscious of the raging battle he had caused. What is it keeps you so wide awake and restless? The winds, she whispered in the dark. For hours she had been watching the tossing of the trees through the blindless windows. They go walking and talking everywhere tonight, keeping me awake. And all the time they call so loudly to you. And his strange whispered answer appalled her for a moment until the meaning of it faded and left her in a dark confusion of the mind that was now becoming almost permanent. The trees excite them in the night. The winds are the great swift carriers. Go with them, dear, and not against. You'll find sleep that way if you do. The storm is rising, she began, hardly knowing what she said. All the more, then, go with them. Don't resist. They'll take you to the trees, that's all. Resist? The word touched on the button of some text that once had helped her. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. She heard her whispered answer, and the same second had buried her face beneath the clothes in a flood of hysterical weeping. But her husband did not seem disturbed. Perhaps he did not hear it, for the wind ran just then against the windows with a booming shout, and the roaring of the forest farther out came behind the blow, surging into the room. Perhaps, too, he was already asleep again. She slowly regained a sort of dull composure. Her face emerged from the tangle of sheets and blankets. With a growing terror over her, she listened. The storm was rising. It came with a sudden and impetuous rush that made all further sleep for her impossible. Alone in a shaking world, it seemed, she lay and listened. That storm interpreted for her mind the climax. The forest barreled out its victory to the winds. The winds, in turn, proclaimed it to the night. The whole world knew of her complete defeat, her loss, her little human pain. This was the roar and shout of victory that she listened to. For unmistakably the trees were shouting in the dark. These were sounds, too, like the flapping of great sails, a thousand at a time, and sometimes reports that resembled more than anything else the distant booming of enormous drums. The trees stood up. The whole beleaguering host of them stood up, and with the uproar of their million branches drummed the thundering message out across the night. It seemed as if they had all broken loose. Their roots swept trailing over the field and hedge and roof. They tossed their bushy heads beneath the clouds with a wild, delighted shuffling of great boughs. With trunks upright they raced, leaping through the sky. There was upheaval and adventure in the awful sound they made, and their cry was like the cry of a sea that has broken through its gates and poured loose upon the world. Through it all her husband slept peacefully, as though he heard it not. It was, as she well knew, the sleep of the semi-dead, for he was out with all that clamoring turmoil. The part of him that she had lost was there. The form that slept so calmly at her side was but the shell, half-emptied. And when the winter's morning stole upon the scene at length, with a pale washed sunshine that followed the departing tempest, the first thing she saw, as she crept to the window and looked out, was the ruined cedar lying on the lawn. Only the gaunt and crippled trunk of it remained. The single great bough that had been left to it lay dark upon the grass, sucked endways towards the forest by a great wind eddy. 
It lay there like a mass of driftwood from a wreck, left by the ebbing of a high spring tide upon the sands, remnant of some friendly splendid vessel that once sheltered men. And in the distance she heard the roaring of the forest further out. Her husband's voice was in it. End of chapter 9 And End of The Man Whom the Trees Loved by Algernon Blackwood